Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today, the 13th of December, I announced that my time as Chair of Beyond Blue Australia's leading mental health charity has come to an end. I've been with Beyond Blue for nine years and I've been board chair since July 2017. It's an organisation doing exceptional things to support every Australian to achieve their best mental health and I've been very proud to be part of it over these years. We now thankfully live in a world where it's commonplace to discuss our mental health And that change in attitude is in no small part thanks to organisations like Beyond Blue that have brought these conversations into the mainstream and have shone a light on how important it is to look after our mental health and seek support when it's needed. The evolution of Beyond Blue during my time as chair has been incredibly rewarding. We've seen the organisation go through huge transformations to meet the nation's growing mental health needs and to support efforts to reform Australia's mental health system. Through COVID, Beyond Blue rapidly developed mental health resources to support people through the pandemic. We saw demand surge and it stayed 20% up ever since. We now know this as our new normal. We know the ripple effects of the pandemic continue throughout our community and no doubt they're going to be there for some time. During my time on the board, Beyond Blue developed a foundational model for universal aftercare in Australia for people who have gone to hospital having had a suicidal crisis. Beyond Blue piloted, tested and scaled this model, which we call the Way Back Support Service. Before the service existed, people were often discharged from hospital into the same life circumstances that contributed to their acute distress. I'm very proud of the way Beyond Blue has invested in and brought to Australians this new way of working. I've had the chance to work with incredible people during my time at Beyond Blue. I'm really proud to have shared the board table with so many wonderful Australians so focused on doing more on mental health. I'd also like to pay a particular tribute to Georgie Harmon, the Chief Executive Officer of Beyond Blue. She's been there all of the time that I've been involved at Beyond Blue and she is a phenomenal leader and I know that she will continue to take Beyond Blue into the future. Of course, all things do come to an end and it's time now to hand over the reins to someone else. Today, I'd like to introduce you to the new chair of Beyond Blue. I'm Julia Gillard and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. The woman I'm speaking with today has a formidable career in executive positions. Reading her CV would require all the time we have for this episode. She's a self-described businesswoman and sustainability advisor with a long history of executive and governance roles across business, sport, climate change, the arts, policy and not-for-profit sectors. Most recently, you might have seen her name in the news leading the Women's Economic Equality Task Force. From today on, she is taking on a new role, Chair of Beyond Blue. Sam Mostyn, welcome to a podcast of one's own. Thank you so much, Julia. 
Delighted to have you here. And Sam, mental health's not a new frontier for you. You were an inaugural commissioner with the National Mental Health Commission and have been with Beyond Blue as a director since February this year. But what made you want to take the next step and become chair? Well, I have to say that you as chair of (laughs) the last period has been a huge influence on my thinking about Beyond Blue and the role itself. I was really engaged as a commissioner with the National Mental Health Commission, as you say, when it was first created. And I, I enjoyed that very, very much, the idea of thinking about the systemic issues of mental health in Australia. But I think it was your leadership of Beyond Blue and the commitment you've given to the organisation, the leadership you've provided with the team to create the new strategy, the really fine point you've brought to that strategy about what Beyond Blue can be for the Australian community. And at a time, I think, when, whether it's post-COVID or the world we live in that's providing so much anxiety and concern for so many people, that it felt right to step up and to try and fill your very big shoes and hopefully keep the work going at the level that you've been leading for the last decade, I think. It's a long time, absolutely. I've been with Beyond Blue since the end of 2014. I am going to miss it so much. It's an incredible organisation and it has achieved so much in its 20-year history, obviously, originally, under the leadership of Jeff Kennett, who set Beyond Blue up, and now me, and now moving to you. Now, Beyond Blue's mission has been a wide-ranging one, but it's done a lot to address stigma and to promote mental health awareness. What do you think are some of the next frontiers, though? I mean, we've service innovated, we've shown the way in lots of areas, but what's on your mind as you step into the role about the next agendas? Well, I think you've been incredibly smart and brave to bring the 2023 plus strategy to a very, very fine point. The call out for Beyond Blue to be earlier, easier, together. Those three words, to me, encapsulate that this is about prevention, early intervention, working in partnership with others. That big blue door that's always been the hallmark of Beyond Blue as the door that people can trust and go through, bringing that earlier in the the life of those that go on to suffer so terribly seems to me to be one of the smartest things that Beyond Blue can do. So I think coming at a time when that strategy has been established and has, I think, caused the organisation to really think about where the greatest impact is that an organisation with a brand recognition like Beyond Blue can do in the prevention space and also allowing those in the mental health community to know that they are playing their significant roles in every part of the mental health story. That's important. I'm very conscious that Georgie Harmon has been a sensational CEO of the organisation and that she and her team really are the drivers and the executors of that strategy and what you've always done and what I would hope to do is be a very big support with the governance side of things and ensure that Georgie and the team are, are well supported and that we continue down that path of remaining most trusted and that we, we continue with that reputation of partnership and not think that any one organisation in mental health can do this alone, just as no community can operate or no person can operate alone. So that's where I start. The strategy has been set. And I think then in Australia, we need to tell a lot more stories about where that journey of people's mental wealth can start and why so many people's mental health and wealth is compromised and why, and to build trust with people in a system and to, for them to feel confident early on to start that preventative work. We, we know the impact in Australia on suicide rates, on anxiety levels, depression levels. That can't be what we accept for a country that has all the advantages and incredible future that Australia has. It seems to me that we've just all got to come together to work very hard to think this through and find really productive solutions to the mental health issues. I absolutely agree with that. We certainly can and should be doing better. There's much to think about. I mean, there's so much about mental health that we still don't absolutely know the answers to. And so one of the things that Beyond Blue's always been focused on is furthering the evidence and the research. Mm. And as we learn more, then we can do things better. You've used the terminology a couple of times, mental wealth Mm. rather than mental health. What speaks to you about that terminology? It was interesting. When I joined the Mental Health Commission quite a while ago now, a number of the members of the commission with lived experience were quite clear with the rest of us that mental wealth was something they believed in and they thought that was a better way of talking to the country about what are we playing for. It was like the commonwealth and the mental wealth of the country and that if we could explain that 
well that would take us to mental well-being and deal with mental ill health and, and the medical side of that, but with an aim to actually lift all of our sites and create communities that were thriving. So it was, it was a sense of positivity and that if we could build mental wealth, it's like any other wealth in our society, economic, social, but we don't talk about the link between that early understanding of how we can we can build that resilience into our communities and to our people as being of great benefit to us all. So I, I guess I, I've fallen back into talking about mental wealth because it was such a strong reminder from those who had lived experience who were on the commission to tell us that that's what the aim is, to, to lift the whole country, not stigmatise. So it went to stigma, it went to um, what kind of conversations to open up and what would the country really look like if we could lift the mental wealth of the nation. I love that. (laughs) Sam, in your family or perhaps uh, colleagues and friends, have you had personal experience with mental wealth issues? I guess we've all had personal experience with mental wealth issues, but with mental ill ill health too. I remember when I was on the commission and then subsequently realising that in Australia, everyone is only one or two members of a family away from either a very, very significant mental ill health matter or a suicide. That's the case in my family. And for the protection of people in my family, I won't go deeply into it, but our family has experienced suicide. We've experienced um, across generations of our family significant mental health issues. I think we're just a normal family. There was nothing unique about us. But what typified us was, like many families, is no one talked about it. It was either that shame or that sense of it's only happening to us. We realise as a country that once you sit down around a table and just with any group of of friends or strangers and said, do you have an experience of significant mental illness in your family? The answer is always yes. And increasingly, it's taking on a form of younger people with, um, with anxiety or depression. But many people would say that they can point to a very significant mental health issue in their family that they haven't talked about before or have felt was just happening to them. When I first started thinking about that, it made me realise just the extent of, the, of this as a conversation for every part of our community. It's not defined by economic circumstances or educational attainment. It's something that happens in almost every family or in friendship groups. But I think we still have to get much, much better at that capacity to talk. It's an interesting mental image to think everybody's just one or two steps away. And I love the way you've put it that this is everybody's uh, shared experience and getting people talking is the first step. You're obviously a very values-driven person. You've made that clear in your work profile that you're interested in doing things that align with your values. Your big passions have been rights for women, rights for Indigenous people and climate change and sustainability. How did you come to define so clearly what it is that drives you? There's a real sense of precision about it. Well, I I hadn't thought about it being precise. Thank you. That's that's really lovely. Um, Most of us start with our value set uh, within our families and from our parents. And I'm very much in that category. I'm the oldest child, oldest daughter of four daughters to an army officer and my mum, who's no longer with us. But when you grow up in an army family, um, affectionately known as army brats, and travel a lot as a young family and watch a parent, in this case my dad, in the act of service and understanding what it was that had encouraged him to want to be a soldier and to represent, in his mind, Queen and Country, as he defended Australia in many ways, just to see that as the model. To watch my mother, who had had a very fine education. She was an Adelaide girl, and they met in Adelaide. She met the man of her dreams, and it was a wonderful love story. But marrying an army officer, a a young army officer, meant that she was immediately into, I guess, reforming what her life was going to be about and her service was to her family and to raising four children, uh, the youngest with an intellectual disability and then being that staunch support of the family as we moved quite regularly. Um, and we were always a family that just knew that my dad was in service but that we had that we were a fortunate family and that we had to always serve, as, serve in a different way. So we were the kids who went door knocking for the Salvos or for the Heart Foundation. We were the kids who worked with my dad to create the things at the, at the school fate that would raise money for the school. There was always something to do that was about just playing your role and never never assuming that you were just the recipient of everyone else's largesse, that it was always about helping. And I think the other thing about being in an army family is you learn a lot about respect. 
my dad and I over the years did have a number of moments where I think we, we came to blows on big issues. He, he served in Vietnam and while he was in Vietnam in the late 60s and early 70s, we were living with my grandmother in Adelaide. So I remember what it was like to be at home with my two other sisters then living with my grandmother and just getting tapes from my dad in Saigon with, you know, the goodnight stories. Um, and that was the only form of communication between my mum and my dad while he was away. And when I got to university, I studied the Vietnam War because I wanted to talk to him about him being there. Of course, I was a young, opinionated, probably a bit of a lefty thinking, why did you go? Why weren't you against the war? Why aren't we about peace? And he, he just said, well, you just have to stop this. You know, you've got to understand the job, the career, the life I've chosen is to serve queen and country. I had no decision about going. That's what governments do. Governments decide on behalf of the people where we will go. And he said, I was a servant of the country. And so he said, I just think you need to be a bit more respectful before you go down this path of just assuming that everything can be fixed with a, a notion of peace or justice. So I think I learned very early on that respect people where you find them and don't just assume that your worldview is right just because you've got passion and energy, that actually thinking about how to engage respectfully. So respect has been a big part of, of my life. And then everyone I worked with subsequently as I grew up through my career, I worked for Michael Kirby as an associate I worked with Paul Keating when he was Prime Minister, and and you know him well, and you know his big story was that um, imagination and courage is what defines leadership, and you take on the big things and you stick with them, and you you put yourself second to the to the outcome. And I'll never forget him saying when he was refusing to take any Australian honour that the the honour as a public servant, albeit a Prime Minister, as, as you know, was the recognition was public progress. And that's all he wanted. And I, I think though they, they've been very influential people that I've had the honour of working with that have just set the tone for me to say, how do things get done? How do you do that respectfully? And then the three big areas that just became obvious as I was developing as a, a young adult and then into my career, it was women, First Nations and Indigenous people, and then the climate story. And they've just continued to be the things that come back to me all the time. And I guess mental health came in at a point through the commission and fits in across all of those things. But I was a good kid at school. I was a school captain at primary school and I was a school counsellor at my high school and going to state schools where you just had to get on and, and, um, do the, and I was about doing the right thing, making friends and, and just believing in something. And so you have been involved in the law, working with Michael Kirby, High Court judge, a much-loved figure, worked in public policy, in politics in that sense, mm. with Prime Minister Paul Keating. But where did the business smarts come from? Because you are a smart businesswoman. I've got a mental image of you as a very young girl marshalling your sisters into a little boardroom and convening a meeting. Is that where it started? I I like that picture. And and if they're listening, they'd be saying, no, (laughs) that's that's not what happened. And there were probably stronger personalities in the family than me. And I said that with great love. Um, One of my sisters once said they thought I was born 30. I think I've always been a quite serious I think I was serious and I always sort of thought about things probably in advance of of my age. So I was very young when I started primary school. I started in Adelaide and I was a young starter. I think that was because we were there with living with my grandmother and it was important to get me off to school. I started high school very young. I was 11 and a half and I started university very young. And I think it was because I always had a kind of old head on a younger body. And so they probably said I was a bit of a dag and I probably wasn't much fun, I suspect. But I think I was also serious. And I always had this view that there were serious things happening that really bothered me about the world. I didn't know anything about Aboriginal Australia, but I was really troubled early on just growing up hearing terrible jokes and slurs on Aboriginal people. It just cut through a kind of sensibility in me about it's just not right. So I've always felt this thing about can, can we just respect people? And so the business thing's interesting because I always balk a bit at the business woman or business thing thing, although that is my career. But I learnt when I left Prime Minister Keating's office to work at Optus Vision and to run corporate affairs. These were big issues at the time. It was the brand new broadband network. Um, It was seeing the policies that had been applied actually working and seeing the economics of that and the financial systems behind it and how how do companies actually work to deliver things. And I was lucky enough to work with Jeff Cousins. So Jeff was my first chief executive at Optus. His view was about doing the right thing but having to actually face the shareholders to describe what we were doing for them as shareholders. Then I worked for Michael Hawker at Insurance Australia Group. IAG had just was a demutualized old NRMA. So it had been a mutual and the whole business was built on mutuality and trust and membership. Michael employed me and he said, I want to retain everything about mutuality on the on the culture. 
but we have to move to being a profitable company. And this was just after the collapse of HIH and FAI, the big insurance companies in Australia. And so I started in that role with Michael and I was at IAG for eight years. It was a bit of pioneering work about could we run a corporation, keep asking the, the question, are we doing the right thing? And I kept extending that question to say, we've got to be the most trusted corporation. If we're going to be a, the insurer of choice and we're making money and we're paying claims, how do you do that with a degree of ethics and values? And so I think I was incredibly lucky to work with people who opened up that space to say, okay, give that a go. Can, is it right that we could build a culture that was about social value whilst delivering shareholder profit? And I learned that if you can get to that cross point well, then you can defend profit and that no society actually operates without some sort of private sector role that's delivering that value, but you've got to do it against a series of criteria that the public trust. And I think about that a lot when I see royal commissions into the aged care system, royal commissions into the robo-debt system. You know, they were all moments when the people involved lost complete sight of the purpose for which they existed. It just became about the money um, and not about the people. So it's built over time. And then I've had the privilege of being inside corporations at the most senior levels and watching how things get done. And from time to time, trying to insert a degree of my sense of values that could be corporate values and convincing people that we could be better. And I still do that on boards today and hopefully it makes a difference. It's a simple but profound question, isn't it? Is this the right thing to do? To yeah. just stop and ask yourself that. I want to take you back just to those young days. One thing that struck me just listening to you describe it, I mean, I went to school in Adelaide too <laughs> and looking back, it just horrifies me mm-hmm. how little we learned about Australia's First Nations peoples. Everything was taught through the frame of, you know, nothing happened before Captain Cook turned up and that was sort of, you know, year dot and then you'd got taught Australian history moving forward. And I see now with my family members, including my sister's grandchildren, that thankfully the curriculum, the world has changed. Obviously, I was involved as education minister when we were designing the new national curriculum. Does that give you a heartening sense of progress? You've probably seen that in your own family too. Yeah, my daughter, who's now 24, her education in part up through primary school into high school certainly had much more of the kind of truthful history of Australia as part of her curriculum. But I'm like you, I I'm horrified to think about what I thought Australia was growing up with the Captain Cook story and no mention of First Peoples or of Frontier Wars or any of that hidden from us. So it's a catastrophe because I think that led to what we then saw at the most recent referendum in Australia over the constitutional reform to recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that enough of the older population still don't fully recognise that history and somehow consign that to kind of woke them or um, a revisiting of history rather than a, a truth-telling exercise. I, frankly, after the, the referendum, I felt completely untethered because I thought perhaps we were a big enough nation and we'd actually that there was enough understanding to actually make that step. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why it hasn't happened. And I guess that makes me worry very much about the mental health issues for many of those um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities who in many cases have spent their life trying to redress that lack of understanding and whether it's Pat Anderson's or any of the great um, stalwarts of the communities that brought us the, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, I think they believe that we had built that educational understanding and to discover that actually that had not happened and that there's so much work still to, to happen must be just completely devastating and not just for those older pioneers but for that younger generation of First Nations people, kids who had to go to school the day after the referendum or after the weekend and have a sense of not being valued, not being worthwhile, being rejected. And I think at Beyond Blue we'll we'll do everything we can, I'm sure, around providing specialised support for for intervention early around whatever happened in those communities. But I suspect the mental wealth of the country was damaged and I think that's going to lead to a whole lot of deep understanding as to how we rebuild a sense of trust and love and connection with country and and First Nations people. But I I wish I'd grown up in an era where we actually were told the truth. Yeah. And thinking about the era you grew up in, when did you first think to yourself, maybe I'm being treated differently just because I'm a girl? It probably wasn't in your family, given it was all daughters. Was it it at school or in sport? I think it wasn't at home. So it was an all-girl family other than my dad. I don't think I felt any discrimination or anything at primary school and I was at, I was I was always at a co-ed school at or at high school just the normal rough and tumble of 
those schools in the in the 70s. But I think I first experienced it coming out of university. So, and because university, I, was, I went to the ANU to do my degree, and I think things were pretty equal there. And there was certainly a very strong cohort of women lecturers at the law school and in the in the arts department. So I think I don't think I saw it there. I certainly remember early on being very conscious of my sense of safety, so personal safety. So I think I've all, so from the time I was, you're old enough to to be the object of something pretty nasty that comes from an attack or a, an assault. I think women have always been aware of their personal circumstances, so walking around a campus at night or jogging in the wrong places. So I think that's something we carry as a mental load once we get into our late teenage years. So I remember that. But where it hit me most, I think, was when I was working for Michael Kirby and sitting as an associate looking out at the court, looking at who were the leaders of the the bar and the legal profession. And there were almost no women at that time who were senior counsel. There was no woman I saw as senior counsel. There might have been an occasional junior barrister that was a woman sometimes an instructing solicitor, but the maleness of the legal system, and it was a system that I thought I was going to be joining and that that would be where I'd be heading. And I just looked at it and thought, this is not a profession that's going to welcome me. And to watch the behaviour of the legal profession back then, and even when I then went on to work in a law firm for a while, you know, we were the women were treated differently. We were taught how to dress. We were told what we could and couldn't wear. The younger associates were hit on by senior partners. Just the stuff, it was just the normal stuff of how you, you're going to get on here. So I think I was beginning to build this thing of this just isn't fair. And to know that we, there were more women at, at university than men, um, and that has continued. So we were graduating with great educations, but not seeing the, that translating into us following the same trajectories as men and then putting up with this kind of underlying lack of respect and behaviour. It's unacceptable now. It's a subject of legal proceedings and all sorts of things that we see in the public domain. But back then, we kind of had to suck it up and ignore it or push it aside. But it was always there. That started it. And then I began to see the systemic things. I reflected on my mum's experience, just reflected on the lives of women generally who were falling out of professional life when they were choosing to have a family or watching the, dif- the differential in treatment on salaries in various jobs. I came to Canberra to work as an advisor for a number of years. And even just being in Parliament House, and you would you would know this more than more than almost anyone, it was a shocking environment. I think as a young woman, I don't know what it was like in actually in the ministerial ranks and, and prime ministerial that you rose to, Julia, but as an advisor, it was a toxic, horrible environment where um, there were no rules. You add alcohol to that. So I guess my, my experience of all that stuff was just, it was always hanging around. So I've always tried to address that yeah. <laughs> and, and to find pathways and find what the systemic issues are and, and within companies, particularly or large organisations, ask those questions about why women aren't prospering or why do we have so many differentials in pay schemes and why is the behaviour so different and why aren't we listened to? And finally, Parliament House has had to ask itself some hard questions yes. about the culture. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm going to take you now to one of the roles that is right in the zone of things that people would have thought of as completely male bastions, Mm -hmm. and that's football. You were the first woman to be appointed as commissioner for the AFL. Amazing. You need to tell us the story that led to that, but you were in that role during the establishment of women's footy. Can you talk to us about how you saw stepping into that football world and the importance that you put on having both competitions. Well, I know you're a great footy fan too and a great Bulldog supporter. So I grew up in an all-girl household and one of the ways I enjoyed uh, spending time with my dad was watching footy mostly on television. So he was a St Kilda supporter and so I became a, a Saint supporter early on. I changed teams horrifically. I'm, I'm terrible. You should never have a second team, but I do, <laughs> the Sydney Swans. But um, I got a call when I was working at IAG from a headhunter to say, would I consider putting my name into the ring for the appointment of the first woman AFL commissioner? That the then chair of the league, Ron Evans, was pioneering because until that point, there'd never been a woman on the board of the AFL. And he was concerned that with half the fan base, half the memberships held by women, 
the game loved by women, that there was there had never been a woman involved in the governance of the game, and that disturbed him. So he got permission from 13 of the then 16 clubs to do a process of a specific appointment of a woman to the to the commission. They had to change the constitution of the AFL to do it. So there were all these you know, signals about the fact that they, they felt they couldn't just, in the normal course of appointing board members, find a woman. So it had to be a specific appointment. Ten women were put into the process, and I think we were all interviewed about four times, and it got down to over several months to two of us, and then and I was the lucky woman standing. I was so proud to be appointed. I didn't expect it to happen. As you say, it was the most ridiculous intervention in my life because although I loved the game, the idea of – I'd never played it, and the idea of being involved in the governance of it seemed – ludicrous. But when when I was first approached, I rang my dad and I rang some some guys I was very close to who were great footy fans and said, do I do it? And my dad just said to me, do you think any man would think twice about putting their hat in the ring? Like You're not being offered it. You're being offered the chance to be considered. Do you think there's any bloke who would say, I've got to think about that and maybe not? And I said, yeah, you're right. I'm doing that classic girl thing of think I can't do it. And, and he said, what's the worst thing that can happen? You go through the process, you don't get it, but man, you will have learnt um, a lot about yourself and about the process, and you'll be proud. So, but if you're not in there, you'll never know. So, wise words from was, dad. It was, good, it was a good dad <laughs> moment, and so, and I, I really didn't expect to get to the end of the process. But when I arrived, the hardest I received a lot of hate mail. So this is back in 2005. So there wasn't really a, a social media um, to speak of, but I received physical hate mail. I was being warned by the men of football that it was a tragedy and a travesty that a woman had been appointed, that this was the softening of the game, this was the beginning of the end, they'd be watching me. But I mean, these were these were really rude, very pointed letters about this is not a place where a woman is welcome. You're just not welcome. And whilst the AFL commissioners themselves did make me feel welcome, walking into that boardroom for the first time with a, all these wood-panelled portraits of the men of football over a couple of hundred years, it was clear that the place had never really understood why women would be welcome or p- play a role. I just don't think they knew what to do with me. And so when there were events where they were involving the clubs and the club presidents, if there were two women in the room, we'd be sat together in a room of 50 men. You must have had this happen at some point in your career, Julia. <laughs> Often. Yes, you say, yes, we're here to talk about handbags and lipsticks. Yeah, yes. Thanks for that. That's, that's good. So there was a lot of work that well, pioneers in that regard had to do to say, you've got to stop doing that. We're here in a governance role. We happen to be women, but we're, we're here for the love of football and the regulation of football, not as women who you can turn to to help with the so-called women's issues. And, and in the early days, I was often asked the question about how we should handle sexual assault claims, issues involving women. I always used to say, I'm not the mother in the room. I'm not, I'm not your conscience. You know, I have a deep set of values. But if you as men don't have a perspective on this as commissioners, then we're all failing in our job. So I'm not going to be the person you hand it to to say, well, the woman in the room said this and therefore we're, that's why we're doing it. So there had to be some rules established early on about the fact that we would all work on all the issues together. But I learned early on that women had been excluded from the game. And because I hadn't played it, I only learned that because women who had played the game forever contacted me in huge numbers and then came to me through a, a group who said, you're the first woman in there and you have a responsibility. We need that group of people running the game to know that we deserve a league of our own and we are exhausted and tired by being ignored. And I then looked at the history of women playing footy and women were playing footy in across Australia. South Australia was a pioneer, West Australia, Victoria particularly. They had leagues of women players in the 1860s, 1880s, and yet they'd always been kept out of the main discussion on who was a footballer in Australia. So then over time, women were joining the commission. The lovely Linda Desso, um, who went on to be um, the governor of Victoria, was the next commissioner to join as a woman. And gradually we built up a group of us who were advocates for the women's game. And we had to, we had to do a lot of asking for the strategic work to be done. It was ignored for a while. I took the view that I was just going to ask that question at every commission meeting, no matter what they thought about me. So I'd say, have we done the strategic work on whether a women's game is viable? And finally, they did the work and realised that it was an economic opportunity for the game. It would ensure that Aussie rules would compete with soccer, which had a dual pathway for men and women, whereas Aussie rules did not, that it would actually bring families back to the game. It would be great for the brand of footy. And so sensationally, and with the help of um, actually the Bulldogs and the Melbourne Football Club, Exhibition games were held and these young women who were just not prepared to say no kept showing up and, and proving that the game was not just watchable but it was thrilling and exciting and and then the guys got it. By 2017 we had the first uh, season of AFLW. It was because we had just kept at it and made it a, an economic and social issue for the game. 
But what's happened is it's reminded everyone about what the essence of football is because these these women came to the game without any preconceived notion of what it meant to be a footballer. They were full in their in their sexuality, in their diversity, in their in everything they believed in. It was all just on show. And the community has responded to say, this is the kind of athletes that we love to follow. And it's proven to be a spectacular success. And I, I, just, I love going and seeing women playing the game now. I've loved the competition in the eight seasons it's been run. And it says so much about when you let women in. These were women who were very seriously held back with a big door that said, you are not welcome as players. You're quite welcome as partners, as mothers, as supporters but not to play the game. I think that was a a huge moment. It's a fantastic story. I love it. I love it. Now, I'm sure that there are lots of women listening to this podcast who are thinking to themselves, wow, Sam has had such a varied career. She's on all of these boards and they're asking themselves, could I do that at some point in my career? Mm. And they're probably asking themselves too, how do you balance a career like yours with family life? You know, how's that at all possible? So can you share some insights about how you've put your life and portfolio of work together, but also how you've had to think about the work-family life balance? It's a really important question. And I think women always face this impossibility of choices. You know, can I have a career or family? And and there are dilemmas all the way through our lives, I think. about, And that's why we end up with so many women who fall out of the, their careers or become carers for others or um, put up with inadequate salaries and conditions just to keep going. So I think it's a really important question. And I say to women who ask the question, of course, you, you, can, you can do almost all these things. You probably can't do it all at once, but have a sense of who you are, a deep sense of what matters to you and, and who you are. I've been, I don't know if it's lucky or just choosing the right life partner. <laughs> so, um, you know, I still think, um, I say this to lots of young women, a husband or partner is not your financial security. So loving someone and thinking they're going to be great when you first meet them is not enough. It's There's got to be something about the relationship that says you're an equal part of that relationship. And I've been very fortunate that my husband, Simeon, you know, when we met, it was a very much about respect for one another. And I guess we understood early on that when it came to how we would work out who was doing what and who got to stay working or caring, that we would do the thing that respected us as a family, but also wasn't just assumed that he would be the one to continue. I've lucked him with a with a, a lovely partner who is sweet and generous and has his own sense of self-worth that knows that being supportive of me is part of who he is. So, and I think that's the whole, that's one of the big stories about gender equality is not getting trapped in relationships that are coercively controlling and or limiting of a, of a woman's ambition. I only had one child, so I could only have um, one child in the end. And so Lottie uh, was born actually in London um, in 99. I think if I had more children, I'm not sure I could have done as much as I had done. I think the, the pressure of managing multiple children, it gets very complicated. And, and I see a lot of women doing that now. and it, It's hard work. And so unless you've got a supporting partner and I guess a work environment that actually believes in flexibility and supporting parental leave, all those kinds of things, then it can be very, very tough. But I do think for women to remain true to the things you really want to do and finding pathways and finding the people that can help you get there, not being too hard on yourself in that pursuit of the role and choosing places to work and for people who actually understand what equality could look like and understand the unique circumstances of women even in 2023 and find those other women and men who will be your supporters and backers who you can share your your anxieties and concerns with. I offer that to anyone who wants to ever call me to to do that and have lots of conversations with women just to sort of sort out what's important to them. Is this the stage of their lives to go for it or are they? is this the moment where they're just taking care of family and how do they come back and, and, and keep going? Everyone's path is different. So I can never prescribe anything for anyone. I've just had incredible luck in my career um, and I've had incredible mentors and guides. But I think if people are doing the thing they love most and they remain focused on that and then surround themselves with people who back them, I'm hoping that's part of the solution. But having just done the review of women's economic equality in Australia, I've got to say it's easy for me to say that. But the lived reality of so many women, whether they're highly educated or not, the systemic barriers that continue to damage women's opportunities are profound. And until we have a universal 
early childhood care sector that is supported by by governments and your report, your Royal Commission in South Australia about that. Um, the Productivity Commission has just reported in recent days about the need for a, a universal childcare system. If we don't get those things right, then we're punishing those women who want to do more with their life and use their education and we're holding them back. And they, they told us that in such huge numbers. Um, we have demonised single mothers. We've used ideology to say that they are mendicant drains on society that use social welfare payments instead of incredibly important people in the community raising children who want to get back into education and work and should be supported and seen as as one of the most productive things we can do rather than dole bludges or whatever language we, we've used in, in Australia to demonise those that have, have needed family payments. And we're sitting on the most extraordinary resource of, of women across the country that just haven't yet been shown the respect through the system to make that big difference. So if I, if I spend most of my time on something at the moment, other than mental health and superannuation and those kind of things, it's it's how do we actually fix that and how do we get governments to say, finally, every woman should be the same as every man to say, I can set my ambition and meet it and I can raise my family or I can choose not to have a family, but I won't be punished or discriminated because of my gender. There's lots to take away in all of that. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Now I'm going to come to the uh, final questions that I ask every guest. And the first of them is, what's the worst misogyny you've had to face? There's so much. <laughs> There's so much. I've had several bosses that weren't the good bosses um, or in environments that were just truly shocking. In the early days in a law firm, to be told that I, I could not wear trousers <laughs> unless I had a disfigurement. So fortunately, I had a re- reconstructed knee with a small scar, but I claimed it as a disfigurement so that I could wear trousers <laughs> and get away with it. Um, so this thing, these, these ridiculous misogynistic views about how we look and how we present. Certainly in my, the time at the commission, I was confronted regularly with the most obscene, hideous slurs, not from my colleagues, mm. but the general football community that felt it was an abomination for a woman to think that she had any right to have um, a role in apparently their game, despite the fact that it was also my game. So it's legions of those that were just, they were vile. And, um, and and it had to be the case that I just didn't take much notice of them. But you begin to get this sense of being an outsider and being reminded constantly you have no right to be here. I still find it extraordinary that just the level of disregard for women generally, I see it all around me all the time. It's the casual things all the way up to the extreme levels of violence, the number of murders of women in Australia today, one a week, um, and seeing the level of coercive control, that kind of misogyny that says a woman must be controlled and and can be the subject of any kind of inappropriate behaviour. I see that at close range with a lot of work I do. And I guess there are times when in the corporate world where I've just felt that oppressive masculine culture, you know, the, the adoption of your idea as theirs, the, um, the refusal to hear your idea or putting you in your place, reminding you that you're not as good or you don't belong, that still happens. And I find actually when I do things like the the um, report for the Economic Task Force, almost made to feel like I'm a bit of a feminist killjoy so that you get this sense of, oh, really, can we stop focusing on this stuff and just go back to normal? And I think that's a form of misogyny in Australia, which is to, to sort of say, can we just get back to how things once were? I think I make some people quite angry in this kind of constant reminder of the need for our equality and respect for all. I always ask my guests about a fact to respond to. And given you've mentioned the report, I've pinched the fact out of the report. So (laughs) thank thank you. And the fact is $128 billion, $128 billion is the value to the Australian economy that can be realised by purposefully removing the persistent and pervasive barriers to women's full and equal participation in economic activity. $128 billion. Yeah. Well, that's um, Deloitte Access Economics that did the work for us on that. And it tells you just how much wastage we've been prepared to tolerate in the Australian economy. The World Economic Forum for the last 20 years has ranked Australia number one for women's education. So the Whitlam reforms, the availability of free education in the time we were being educated, we have a cohort of the most incredibly educated women in the world. And yet, as we found in the report, these persistent and recognisable barriers, they work systemically and very successfully to hold women back. Whether it's the way we think about who cares and who does caring work and how we don't pay for that and we don't respect that work through to the tax and transfer system, which is applied in a way as if men and women 
experience those systems equally, and we do not, um, through to um, policies that are designed, whether it's robo-debt or things that actually have a very pernicious impact on women more than men generally. Once you unpack all of that and you see what's going on, you wonder how our economy actually operates. And I think through COVID, I think we all came to an understanding that it was care and, and the, the people who do the unpaid caring or the underpaid caring that held the, the whole show together. And I think our economy in Australia and probably in many other parts of the world is held up by this silence that we've given to the work of women because they get on and do it. And if women, as they did in um, in the Nordic countries, went on strike and said, we're removing all services just for a day, see how you go, then the Australian economy would collapse. When we talk about making Australia productive again, we never come back and say, can we start with half the population and make that a productive resource as opposed to ignoring us? And everything in here has been asked for for decades. Um, and you've seen it in the work that you've done, Julia and we just can't waste another moment and think that women are prepared to sit alongside and, and put up with the level of discrimination that sits in our economic and social systems. And maybe that's the biggest act of misogyny, actually, if I think about it. It's that we don't fully acknowledge, in Australia at least, that we that women have a powerful role to play to maintain the economy and to lift the economy and to build resilience into our economy and make it dynamic and you know, the kind of things that women bring to, to everything, which is a, a degree of innovation and it, whether it's through the caring lens or otherwise, but we have something very important to give an economy and we're persistently, <laughs> pervasively <laughs> stopped. And, and you find that it's so few women who make it through. I, I feel that privilege all the time about having somehow navigated that to get through. And I know that's unusual and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't have been through luck or it should have been as equal as any man that I was going through school with, but it wasn't and it still isn't. Now, if you could change one thing overnight for women, so if you had all power but could only change one thing, what would it be? I talked to my daughter about this a lot because she's 24 and I saw a fantastic interview that Meryl Streep gave recently where she said women have learnt to talk men and men never talk anything other than men. So she's saying, <laughs> we learn the language of men to get things to happen, but men have never learned to talk women. <laughs> so if I could change something, and talking to Lottie, we both said, wouldn't it be amazing if we could spend a week in the world of a man to understand what our powers could be if we didn't carry the burden of the constant concern about our personal safety or how we're being perceived or dealt with by a patriarchal, misogynistic environment. What would that feel? I, I would love women to feel if you lifted all of that psychological burden, if you lifted all of that thing that we have to, we load ourselves up with, what would we be capable of? Mm, and what would it feel like? what would like? it feel like not to ever worry about your personal safety mm. or choosing the right person because they're not going to be controlling you? What would that feel like? And I... So there's lots of you know, lots of policy things I'd love to change, but I think it would be the most thrilling thing to feel like a man and not just speak man, but be man <laughs> in a way, and to then be able to convince you know societies and our society that that's what we deserve, that ability to be unburdened by this extraordinary weight that we carry. I, it must be wonderful. And I'm not saying it's for all men because no. I, I don't want to put all men in that category. That's not fair. But the the gendered nature of our world. I'd love to know what it feels like for my gender not to be determinative of how I get to do, do things. It's a very big wish. <laughs> now, of course, Virginia Woolf is mm. famous for saying a woman needs a room of one's own if she is to write. We've got this, a podcast of one's own. And I loved it when you said that women playing football wanted a league of their own, yes, um, yeah. channeling Virginia in all sorts of ways. Yeah. But let me put a Virginia quote to you. Virginia says... It is obvious that the values of women differ very often from the values which have been made by the other sex. Yet, it is the masculine values that prevail. Speaking crudely, football and sport are important. The worship of fashion, the buying of clothes, trivial. And these values are inevitably transferred from life to fiction. Sam says, <laughs> "I feel feel a disagreement with Virginia coming on." <laughs> no, actually, I think I think she speaks the truth there. I carry with me a generally a book by Mary Beard, Professor Mary Beard, called "Women and Power." She's a professor of classics at Cambridge University, and you would know her work, Julia. And I love that little slim book of hers where she examines where did this separation of how men could speak and what they cared about in the public realm 
and how women would speak about domestic issues and prattle on really about gossip and household duties. And she traces that back to the, the Greeks and the Romans and the great you know, stories of, of who had power in the public space. And by the end of the book, she's talking about, do we accept the structures of power that were built for men by men? And why do we keep asking women to change, to fit within that power structure, rather than asking about the mechanisms of power itself? And so my response would be, she's right to say that there is a world in which sport and the things that men care about were important and the, the women's weren't. And it shouldn't be that any of those things are any less important. It's the fact that they've been gendered and that the importance placed on sport. So in my world, sport's been a big part of what I've been able to do to try to address gender inequality. But I had to enter the men's world and play within that power structure. And when I watch the women in sport now, they are reconceiving and rebuilding what is power in sport. They're redefining it. They're taking control of it. And the Matildas, in all of their glory, when they came to Australia for the World Cup, started with their program that said, Till It's Done. They're moving through everything about what they're trying to change structurally. And the first one was about filling stadiums, making sure broadcasts were had, and they got 11.5 million people watching. Then they got an equal pay deal, and they haven't stopped. And they they want to use it as a a way of taking the world on this journey to to say, what does equality look like? And they're not going to stop till it's done. So I'd say to Virginia, I guess, let's move on from that world without those topics define what's important and change the whole structure of what is a powerful person, what is a powerful moment, what is power. And it's going to be a mix of those things that women bring, men bring. But we've got to redefine this whole show, I think, in order for equality to prevail. But I hope sport doesn't just sit in the world of men because I think it's it's a powerful opportunity to actually show how, how power can change everywhere. Till it's done, I love that. Sam, thank you for a fantastic conversation and I am absolutely delighted that you're going to be taking over the chairing role at Beyond Blue and I will be watching and applauding from the sidelines. So thank you for agreeing to do that and it's just been great to talk to you today. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the Institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Becca Shepherd, Connie Blafari and Alina Ecott, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas on who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us next time.